Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. Your word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. And so teach us all now as I preach. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of the hearts of all listening be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would please open your Bibles to our sermon text. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, <clears throat> that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Last week, we concluded a major section in Paul's letter to the Romans with a glorious doxology. And so this morning, we begin the second half of this letter. In fact, we could even say there's one word here in this verse, verse 1, which serves as a bridge between the two halves of the letter. And that key word is, therefore. Perhaps you've heard before the common Bible study rule of thumb, which says, whenever you come to a therefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? What does it point back to? In this case, Paul is pointing back to all that has come before. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that he has laid out in the first 11 chapters of his letter. The gospel which is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And as he has made clear, God justifies the ungodly through faith alone on the basis of what Christ has accomplished, not on the basis of our good works. You might think that that's the end of the story. No works are ever required of us. And now Paul says such wondrous mercy of God requires a response. And so he comes to the therefore. He comes to a great shift from the first half of the letter to the second. In everyday terms, we might call it a shift from explanation to exhortation to application. Theologians like to call it a shift from the indicative to the imperative. The indicative is a fancy term for when a verb describes the facts. It describes what is true. In contrast, the imperative is a verb that issues a command. It is imperative that you must do this. Do this, don't do that. These are imperatives. 
And commands or imperatives are rare in the first 11 chapters of Romans. There's a small cluster in chapter 6, and then two exhortations against boasting and pride in chapter 11. But the fact that you can count on one hand the number of imperatives in the first 11 chapters just shows how uncommon they actually are. It doesn't mean that these chapters are of no practical relevance. Of course, they have been. Certainly, I haven't preached 34, can you believe it, 34 sermons without issuing a few exhortations of my own as I've applied this letter to your hearts and to your minds and to your lives. And now as we come to the second half of the letter, we see that Paul has saved up almost all of his commands to unload them on his readers now. Back in chapter 6, Paul said that through faith we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And this means that we must walk in newness of life. And now he wants to put flesh on the bones and tell us exactly what this newness of life looks like in all of its splendor. Of course, he could continue to just describe this newness of life from a distance. He could use the indicative and paint a wonderful picture of what it looks like. That is not what he does. Instead, he exhorts us. He urges us to live this new life as he issues commands and warnings and encouragements to put this new life into action. As Paul made very clear in chapter 6, This transformed life is not optional. It's not an extra accessory which you can choose to add or not. As he said then, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It was not possible for Paul to write the first 11 chapters of Romans and just stop there. Just end the letter right there. In the same way, it is not possible to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and reject Him as Lord of your life. Just as much as Paul is passionate that justification is by faith alone and no works can be snuck in on the front end, he is just as passionate that once you have been justified by faith alone, you absolutely must respond to the amazing grace of God by this newness of life. By a life characterized by holiness and love. In fact, if these things are missing, perhaps you don't really have that first part. For a tree is known by its fruit. Perhaps you haven't really received the grace of God and justification through faith in Christ. For how can you receive such incredible love and mercy and not respond with love and gratitude and obedience to your Savior. Of course, as we'll see today, we must recognize that even our response is still dependent on God's grace. But there must be a response. It's not an optional extra, take it or leave it. Briefly, a basic outline of what's ahead. In chapters 12 and 13, Paul will lay out the Christian conduct in general. And then chapter 14 through 15, verse 13, he'll address a problem affecting the church in Rome in particular. 
And the rest of the letter consists of Paul's future plans and closing greetings. We'll look at just the introduction to this section, the first two verses of chapter 12 this morning. So first, present yourself to God as a sacrifice. Reading again verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we already considered how Paul's appeal draws on the gospel laid out in the previous 11 chapters based on the word, therefore. But this is further strengthened by the fact that his appeal is on the basis of the mercies of God. Paul is saying, in light of the mercy you have received, this is how you ought to respond. At the same time, we must be careful not to look at this as some sort of tit-for-tat exchange that we have entered into with God. It's not a deal in which you say to God, you give me salvation and I'll pay you back with a corresponding amount of service, a a little salvation for, for me, a little worship for you. That's not how it works at all. In fact, it couldn't possibly work that way. For as we've seen, our salvation is all of grace and completely dependent on God's choosing us, saving us when we were enemies of God, when we were utterly and completely dead in our sins. And we had no choice in the matter. We only responded in faith once we were given new life by the Spirit. And even our response of grateful obedience, grateful obedience service, is still empowered by the Spirit giving us this new life. So there is an initiative by God and a response by us. But this is not a bargain entered into by two equal parties. Rather, this is a covenant relationship between the infinite Creator God and one of his lowly, finite creatures. And praise be to God that he would have such mercy on us to enter into such a gracious relationship with his rebellious creatures. Paul's exhortation is that we present ourselves to God as a sacrifice. This recalls an earlier command to present yourself to God back in chapter 6, which we read earlier. We read one of those rare commands back in chapter 6, verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. There in chapter 6, it was a more generic presentation to God as those brought from death to life. Now here in chapter 12, We are to present ourselves specifically as a sacrifice. And this sacrifice is described with three adjectives. It's threefold description. It's a little less clear in the English because one adjective, living, comes before the noun sacrifice. And then two adjectives come after. But still, you see there are three adjectives. It's living, holy, and acceptable to God. So we'll consider first the concept of the sacrifice itself and then take each of the three adjectives describing it. So first, this is a new covenant sacrifice. 
after the final, once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross, in the new covenant, we no longer offer animal sacrifices to God. They're obsolete. The book of Hebrews clearly teaches that Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. He has done away with all the old covenant ceremonial worship. Those practices were a shadow and a copy of what was to come. But in Christ, the reality has now come. Children, imagine you've been getting ready to get a full-size pool in your backyard. And while you're waiting for that pool to be installed, you've been playing in a little kiddie pool. And once the big pool is set up, it's filled with water, you don't need that little kiddie pool anymore. You have the real deal. And once the reality has come, the shadows and the copies, they are done away with. In fact, to keep them around would be an insult to the real thing. Now that Christ has come, we no longer worship in a physical temple. But we are called a holy people and a royal priesthood. And as we worship God in spirit and in truth, we are called to, as Peter, as Peter writes, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 while we no longer speak of literal sacrifices, the language of sacrifice is found all throughout the New Testament. And so we read Hebrews thirteen five. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And Paul will write later in this very letter that he is, quote, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, Romans fifteen sixteen. <coughs> and so in this verse, you are called to present your body, your entire self, as a sacrifice on the altar. Now the body here is not meant to say this is merely an external thing, because we'll get to the mind the internal, the very next verse. The point is we are to worship God, the body and the mind, that which is visible and invisible with a whole self. All this we are to present to God as a sacrifice in response to his mercy to us in Jesus Christ. So first it's a sacrifice. Second, it is to be a living sacrifice. Often preachers make a complete contrast between this and animal sacrifices, which are said to be dead sacrifices. I think it's worth recalling, even animal sacrifices are living at the point that they are presented at the altar. But then they are slaughtered. That is, of course, an essential aspect of an animal sacrifice. But Paul here highlights that we are to be continually living sacrifices, sacrifices that do not die but continue to live as sacrifices before God. We are also living sacrifices because as Paul made clear in chapter 6, we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But there's also a danger with living sacrifices, is there not? Because a living sacrifice is tempted to get up and jump off the altar. And so Jesus Christ called us to deny ourselves Take up our cross and follow him. 
And this requires a daily dying to self, daily crucifying our sinful natures, daily living for God. A living sacrifice must continue to remember the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, continue to respond in grateful obedience to the Lord. Third, this is a holy sacrifice. Holy is a typical description of a sacrifice. Sacrifice is holy in that it is set apart from the everyday, the mundane, and devoted to our holy, holy, holy God. You are already made holy by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, making you a temple of the living God. And yet you must continue to be sanctified, made holy, by listening to the Holy Spirit as he convicts you of your sins, by repenting of those sins, and then devoting yourself to walk in newness of life. You are holy, and yet you must grow in holiness. This is the pathway to an ever more holy sacrifice. And fourth, this sacrifice is acceptable, well-pleasing to God. What a contrast to what we saw earlier in chapter 8, verse 8. There it says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But of course, you are not in the flesh because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so as you present yourself as a living, holy sacrifice, this is well-pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, the burning incense and the smoke of the burnt offering are depicted as rising to heaven, as a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God. And in the book of Revelation, it is the prayers of the saints which are depicted as a smoke of incense, prayers ascending before God's throne, which are well-pleasing in his presence. But I believe here in Romans it's saying, it's not just prayers, but all that we do in Christ's service, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is well-pleasing in God's sight. Prior to your conversion, you could do nothing pleasing to him. But now in Christ, depending on the Spirit, by the mercy of God the Father, you can please your Heavenly Father. And you can look forward to that day when you will receive that beautiful commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Master. Verse 1 concludes by describing the sacrifice, saying, which is your spiritual, or better, reasonable, worship. The Greek word translated spiritual in the ESV. It's difficult for interpreters. English translations vary. I think the older the King James is to be preferred here. This is your reasonable or rational worship. In other words, Paul is saying, this is completely fitting. This is not only what I am urging and exhorting you to, but this is nothing less than what makes perfect sense and exactly what God is due. And contrast this to what we saw in chapter 1, the exact opposite of what is reasonable and rational. Those who knew God because he had revealed himself and what he has made, and yet they 
suppressed that knowledge, and in their foolishness and pride, they turned away from his worship and chose to worship the creature rather than the creator. This is the height of folly, the opposite of reason. In contrast to this, what Paul is urging us to here in chapter 12 is perfectly reasonable. But also consider the alternative for the Christian. That would be to say, Father, you have granted me salvation purely by grace, and I owe you my life, my future, and everything, except I'm going to reserve one small portion of my life for myself. I'm going to reserve Friday nights for my own pleasure, and I'm going to ignore you and your law just that one night of the week. Or I'm going to follow you completely, but when it comes to this relationship with my girlfriend, that's, that's off limits, God. I can't give that up to you. The scripture says any exception to giving God everything is irrational. Perhaps at first sight, this is not as completely foolish as those in chapter 1 who utterly reject God and trade him for idols. And yet, do you not see that whatever the exception is, that is your idol? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods besides me, besides the one true God, and whatever interferes with giving him yourself, all of yourself, that is your idol. As Isaac Watts says, where he wrote, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This verse, this verse, first verse of this section of the letter, Paul has started us off by getting to the heart of the matter and making clear that Christ demands your all, your whole life on the altar. And why not? He has given his life for you as a sacrifice on the cross. And so the only appropriate response, the only rational response as stated here is to offer your body, your everything back to him as a living sacrifice. Now Paul builds on this as he explains how do we do this as he moves into verse 2. So verse 2, not conformed, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let's read again verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, (coughs) what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here we'll take first the negative, do not be conformed, then the positive, be transformed, and third the result, so that you may approve the will of God. So first, do not be conformed to this world. This world refers to this fallen world, this sin-soaked, death-cursed world under the power of the evil one. While we have been united to Christ and so have been crucified and risen with him and have died to this present evil age, we are still living in this world. We are citizens in heaven, and yet we remain in this world in the world, but we are not to be of the world. Yet we know this world has an agenda. It is seeking to make you just like itself, 
to conform you to its image. J.B. Phillips hit the nail on the head with his well-known paraphrase of this verse. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. I've gotten a little more experience recently with Play-Doh. It's squishy, it's moldable, it easily is pressed into any shape and into all the curves and corners of a mold. Are you like Play-Doh for the world to shape into its own likeness? Now, it wasn't always this way, but as we look at the world around us today, the ethics of our culture are in constant and rapid flux. Even as the world seeks to press people into its mold, the shape of that mold is changing so fast it's hard to keep up. In our evening sermon last week, we saw King Nebuchadnezzar command to bow, commanded everyone to bow down to the golden image he set up. And we compare that to our culture's latest demands, to bow down to transgender ideology and cultural Marxism. But these demands, they shift so rapidly that some people have sarcastically put up on their profile pictures online an image proclaiming, I support the current thing, whatever that may be. But just as the world has its agenda to press you into its mold, the Lord has the opposite agenda for you, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, the Greek word for transform here is metamorphosis. I can't help but think of Jameson's favorite book right now, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. I'll give you a spoiler warning. If you haven't read the book, you can cover your ears. Caterpillar, after he gorges himself on all sorts of interesting foods, enters a cocoon and he goes through a metamorphosis, a transformation. And he emerges a beautiful butterfly. That's the exact kind of transformation that Paul is talking about here. Except he's not just talking about what you can see on the outside. Rather, his emphasis is on the renewal of the mind. And so that means it's a transformation from the inside out. We can even break down this word renewal. It's the same in the Greek. It is to be made new again. For the new age has broken into the world. And we must have a mind that is in keeping with the new age. The new age to come that has already broken into the world. The everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Renewal of the mind contrasts with the downward spiral of false worship. And the corrupt mind we saw back in chapter 1, I already brought it up once. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That was the darkness of mind that we were in before Christ brought us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. But now we are called to renew our minds with ever-growing light, the light of the truth that is found in Christ, who is the light of the world. 
So how do we do this? Well, the scriptures are, of course, the best place to begin, for God has revealed himself here in scripture, the truth about who he is and what he has done and what he has to say to you. But of course, all truth is God's truth. And we can fill our minds with truth wherever it is found. And that includes the fingerprints of the creator covering natural creation, which declares his praise. So Paul puts it this way in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Fill your mind with these things. Your mind will be renewed as it is filled with what is true with what is good, with what is beautiful. And this brings us to the result. So that, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Greek verb here, dokumatso, means to approve something after a period of examination, and testing. And the ESV translators are are trying to capture what may strike us as a bit of a strange idea at first glance, to test and approve what is the will of God. So you might ask, (coughs) why would we need to test and approve God's will? Why would we need to examine it or try it out? The point that Paul is making here is that as your mind is renewed, made new again, the result is that you will be able to examine and approve God's will and see that his will truly is what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, this is a perfect contrast to what we saw back in chapter 1. There, as sinners were handed over to ever-increasing wickedness, they not only committed sins themselves, but they looked on with approval at others who practiced these things. They looked at others transgressing God's will and reaping their just deserts and declared, it is good. And here... In contrast to this, as your mind is renewed, you will look at the will of God, the law of God, and you will test it and try it. And you will say, it is good. It is very good. Of course, God does not need you to pass judgment on his will. But what an incredible mark of a transformed and renewed mind when your desire and your judgment has come to be aligned with God's own. As for the specifics of the will of God for the believer's life, Paul will be laying this out in greater detail in the rest of this chapter and the one that follows. We'll get into these specifics in the sermons in coming weeks. I believe this is a beautiful result of this whole process of presenting your body as a living sacrifice, of 
the renewal of your mind. The result is that your heart response to it all is to say, the will of God for my life is good. This is good and acceptable and perfect. Praise the Lord. Closing illustration, there are some Christians today who believe that in order for Christ to return, the Jews must first rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. I don't believe that's the teaching of Scripture, and it's not the main point in this closing illustration, but I think the Scripture teaches something far more glorious about the temple of the living God. For Jesus said during his earthly ministry, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Not only were his words fulfilled in his death and resurrection, but after he ascended into heaven, he became the chief cornerstone in a far greater temple that he is continuing to build even today. And so Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. Through faith in Christ, you are not only living stones in God's glorious temple, but you are royal priests in his service. And as you live in his service, every moment of every day that you present to the Lord, It's just another part of that sacrifice. That sacrifice which is living and holy and well-pleasing in his sight. And so continue to renew your mind. Continue to live for him. And look forward to that day when you receive that long-awaited commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Shall we pray? Our great God, we are so thankful for this glorious gospel, knowing that it's only because of the perfect work of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have any hope of salvation. And yet we do have hope, and we rejoice in the mercies of God. And because of those mercies, how can we do anything but respond with gratitude and with Worship, and a worship that is unreserved, a worship that encompasses all our lives. And so, Lord, help us to respond with everything we have as living sacrifices, holy and well-pleasing to you. Lord, help us to be renewed in our minds, renewed with all the truth that is in Christ with all the light that is in him. And so that we would look on your perfect law, the law that leads to life, the law that leads to perfect freedom and delight in it and say it is good, it is acceptable, it is perfect. So that what is our duty 
might also be our delight. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.